Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. everybody to Nightlight. So glad you could join us today. I want to thank first Ken Quiethawk for his amazing intro as always. Uh, he and his wife are phenomenal Native storytellers and for those of you who have not experienced Native storytelling, I would refer you to their website and uh, just Google his name or Google Native storytellers and most likely you'll find him at the top of the list. It's an amazing way of preserving history, and everyone should experience it, kids included, because I think it's a very unique and wonderful way to make sure that messages travel through time to the places where they're meant to be. Uh, also, uh, if you have checked into our YouTube channel, please, uh, please subscribe. That's the only way we actually know you're listening. So if you would kindly subscribe to our YouTube channel, Mark and I would greatly appreciate it. I am really excited about the topic today. I have with me Chris Carter, and he's an amazing author. He's received his undergraduate and master's degrees from the University of Oxford. And um, he's originally from Canada, but he, and he currently teaches internationally. He's written three books that I have found. He may have written more, but I found three. He's written Science and the Psychic Phenomena, Science and the Near-Death Experience, and Science and the Life After, and, and the Afterlife, sorry. Um, and as most of you know, these are topics that are near and dear to my heart and that I have delved into, um, not as in great depth as I would like to, but they are certainly topics that have fascinated me and I have been involved in for a very, very long time. And so I am, I am thrilled to pieces to um, welcome Chris to the show. Welcome to the show, Chris, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Barbara. I, I, just, I am so delighted that you have approached all of these topics, the psychic phenomenon, the near-death experience, and the afterlife from a scientific point of view, and I think that's something that, that – should be done more and more so people realize that these are actual occurrences and that um, they they impact 
our reality, uh, not only as far as relatives and you know loved ones that have gone over, but but the fact that that, that we're connected on that level as well. So, what what prompted you to take this kind of approach 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 to to these fascinating topics? Okay. Well, first of all, I'd like to say that those titles are not uh, of my own choosing. Um, my first book was originally titled Parapsychology and the Skeptics. It was actually released uh-huh. under that title. Uh, but my first publisher actually went bankrupt, and uh, I got to get a new, new publisher, which took to, took on all three of my books. Uh, so my first book was originally titled Parapsychology and the Skeptics, which is a far more descriptive title, in my opinion. Uh-huh. My second book was originally, on the near-death experience, was originally titled At the Gates of Eternity. My third book, Science and the Afterlife, was originally titled um, Death and Beyond. So I preferred these more somewhat more poetic titles to the ones that we have. So i just like to say that uh, those titles are not of my choosing. But to answer your question, um, what, uh, uh, what was my motivation for uh, writing my books? Uh-huh. Okay. Um, well, I've been interested in these topics for years, and uh, I gradually became convinced that uh, um, there was conclusive evidence, proof beyond all reasonable doubt, of the existence of an afterlife. And, uh, but then I started to think, I started to wonder, you know, I remembered um, a famous f- physicist, Richard Feynman. He said, the easiest person to fool is yourself. If you believe something and you want to know if, it's, if it's, you have good reason to believe in it, then examine evidence to the contrary. So I decided to examine evidence to the contrary. And this led to um, an online debate which lasted several weeks with a, uh, a so-called skeptic of um, psychic phenomena in, in general and of survival in particular. And I was appalled at his ignorance and I was appalled at his dogmatism. He said nothing, absolutely nothing, that convinced me that uh, anything that I, the conclusions that I had come to were in any way mistaken. He didn't shake my beliefs one bit, quite the opposite. I became more convinced that I was right, ironically, and uh, so I decided after that that I was going to write a book about uh, the evidence for an afterlife. But then I realized that one of the alternative explanations, the only one that's actually taken seriously by people who know the data, is the uh, hypothesis of super extrasensory perception, or super ESP. And uh, I realized that I first had to deal with extrasensory perception. Hence my first book, Parapsychology and the uh-huh. Skeptics. So my first book is on extrasensory perception and um, uh, the skept- so-called skeptical objections. The second book starts dealing with the afterlife evidence. The second book deals with the near-death experience and deathbed visions. The third book deals with other forms of evidence for the afterlife, namely um, children who remember previous lives, apparitions, uh-huh. and, uh, and probably the bulk of the book is devoted to the evidence for um, alleged communication with the departed via talented human mediums. And that's it. It's, you know, I, I think that, that um, having been in the field for the last 50 years, one of the things that, that occasionally frustrates me is people saying, well, it could be this or it could be that, or you could just be, you know, you investigated it beforehand, or you know, all of the, all of the reasons that are thrown out there for possible fraud, and 
you know, I've come to realize in my later years that people who throw those kind of um, suggestions at one um, aren't ready to believe in, the, in the, the reality of the fact that they actually do exist. And I, I think that what your books will show, and I, and I personally prefer your other titles, to tell you the truth. I think those are far more <laughs> descriptive of, of what, the, what the practice actually is. I, I'm hopeful that you know in you know in my time frame that that it's not a science as much as it's a part of our reality that that these things are possible and that people will come to um, at at least listen to explanations of them or or if they have experienced any of it and of course anybody that's experienced a lot of these things you know says well of course they're real you know <laughs> i've been there i've done it it's real but but it's not as easy as you know flipping something out there and saying you know here this expert says this therefore it has to be true it's it's definitely you've gone through I, and, and I love the fact that you, you go back into the 1800s and you deal with a lot of the mediums during that time frame because they were spectacular. And um, there weren't as many frauds around. I mean, you know, there were, I'm sure there were frauds, but, but the mediums that, that, that you speak of in your book and, and you, have, you have documented um, are, are phenomenal mediums. And, you know, they, they welcomed the challenges that were put to them. And it's very much like the Fox sisters when, when they were um, in this country, when the Fox sisters began there to become known and to be, be, start demonstrating what they could do. Um, it, it's, a little, it's a little frightening that, that when somebody can do something that is beyond normal, they're immediately classified as a fraud. They're immediately, you know, they're the I doubt it's. And and it, it is very frustrating when you have a gift like this to be able to demonstrate it without being attacked. And I think your yes. book, it, yes. you know, the the one that I've read um, is is spectacular in how you have documented the the early the early mediums. And and um, for those people who don't don't exactly know what a medium is, maybe best you describe them and 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 how their gifts and talents sort of were put out there to the public? Well, a medium is any um, method of, of uh, transmission and reception. You know, radio is a medium. The Internet is a medium. Television is a uh -huh. medium. A human medium is used to describe someone, usually a woman, who acts as an intermediary, or seems at least to act as an intermediary, between uh, the world of the living and the world of the departed. Um, I would like to say a couple of things, though. First of all, with regards to, because you raised a number of points, but first of all, with regards to um, skepticism, I, I find that the so-called skeptics fall into two camps. The first camp would be those who are simply ignorant. They just don't know what they're talking about. They haven't done their homework. And those people just need to, well, do their homework. Okay. The second the second camp, or the second type of skeptic is somewhat more serious. These people tend to be militant atheists. And one of the foundations of their atheism is the ancient doctrine of materialism. That is that all events have a material cause and in the end all that matters is matter. Um, psychic abilities such as telepathy and certainly 
communication with the deceased, challenges the doctrine of materialism, one of the foundations, the fundamental foundations of their belief system. And this explains their dogmatic denial of the evidence and their desperation to, um, to dismiss the evidence on whatever grounds they can find, whatever excuse they can find, no matter how far-fetched, fraud, super extrasensory perception, whatever. So that's the nature of the skeptical movement. You also raised some points about mediums, especially um, 19th century mediums. I want to read a brief excerpt from my third book. And this describes the, uh, what I call the cast of characters, the mediums who are associated with the, uh, some of the research with the British and American societies for psychical research. Here's a, here's a, a paragraph in my book. The mediums include, the automists, I'm sorry, the automists included the Boston medium, Mrs. Piper, whom we have already met. Mrs. Piper was the only professional medium in the group. Most of the other principal mediums were upper-class women, some of them well-known figures in public life who used pseudonyms and kept their mediumship a closely guarded secret, even from their friends. These included Mrs. Verrill, wife of Dr. A.W. Verrill, and a lecturer in classics at Newnham College. Her daughter, Helen. Mrs. Holland, the pseudonym of Mrs. Fleming, a sister of Rudyard Kipling who lived in India. Mrs. Forbes, another pseudonym. And Mrs. Willett, a pseudonym for Mrs. Coombe Tennant, Justice of the Peace, and the first woman to be appointed to the British government as a delegate to the Assembly of the League of Nations. At this point, I refer the, the uh, reader to a footnote at the bottom of the page. The footnote reads, At this point, the, me- the reader may recall with some amusement the remark made by skeptic Victor Stanger that opened part three of this book. Here's the quote. Lodge and other 19th century psychical researchers unwitting, unwittingly allowed themselves to be fooled by the tricks of professional fortune tellers and slate of hand artists posing as spiritualists. I mean, come on. These, these were women of high standing who, who worked under pseudonyms. <laughs> well, and, and you know, too, um, <clears throat> in my experience, and, and I, as I said before, I've been in the field for over 50 years. Um, I have found that the mediums that, that, that I know, that I've met, that, that, that I, you know, have even, you know, that, that I know, um, did not seek this gift out. It is something that evolved in spite of them in, in many cases. So that, you know, they didn't take a class or classes. They didn't study with someone. It, it, is, it is something that is natural to them independently of, of their station in life. And um, so, that, so that it is something that, that, that you're called to, that you, you don't seek yourself. I mean, you can, you can be a psychic. You know, everybody's psychic, for heaven's sakes. But... But the mediumship is something that, that, that evolves out of your own development of yourself as opposed to something that you take a class and study for, in my experience. Now, I could be way off, off base, but that's, that's what I have experienced over time. And it, it's that it, 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 it is gifted to people of all stations of life in all areas of the country and the world, and that it can be upsetting to a degree, 
but but once you 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 begin to you know associate and 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 get comfortable with a gift it it is truly amazing <clears throat> it is as natural as breathing to these people that have this gift and and i think that that so many people have been victimized because because they have this gift and there it probably there were so many, there were many others that had the gift as well but that you just didn't want to open themselves up to the criticism and 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 the abuse in many cases and certainly if you go back far enough in england especially mediums were mediums who were if if you go way back in england they were usually put in the in the um insane asylum because they were practicing their gift, and people thought them crazy. So mm-hmm. it's it's. I'm not sure. I, it, yeah, I'm not entirely sure. I think that people thought they were crazy. I think that people were uh, probably quite open to the experience. Uh, I mean, mediumship is found not just in um, um, uh, 18th, 19th century Europe. I mean, it's found in uh, it's found in China, uh, ancient Greece, uh, uh, among Native oh, North Americans. Yeah. I mean, it's it's uh, it's universal, and it's and it's been around since the beginning of time. Absolutely, there are, there yeah. are those that are able to tap into that that energetic field, and I think that that the ladies that you've talked about, I I mean, people should, uh, you know, when when you talk about going to a medium today, you know, you go make an appointment and you have your appointment, but but in the in the 19th century um it it was it was phenomenal the way they tested them and and the testing that they were put to um is phenomenal and and i think that it 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 speaks to their um their courage and their strength that that they went through a lot of this testing because uh people were definitely skeptics and yet the the people who were testing them in many cases were were very learned people who were trying to 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 say you know is this real or is this not real and some of the tests that they put them through were really phenomenal and they all sailed through beautifully i mean it was it was just phenomenal how effort effortlessly they they were able to go through these tests and I find it fascinating. There were more men that were testing the women than women testing the women, though there were, there were some women that were in on the testing process as well. And, you know, you have the Society for Psychic Research, which um, is that is that still in, in existence today, or is has that kind of, kind of fizzled out? Well, there's two main societies of psychical research. There's the British Society, Psychical Research, which was founded in 1880, and then the uh, mm-hmm. American Society for Psychical Research, which was founded in 1882 by William James of Harvard University. Um, both organizations are still around today. Of course, there isn't as much interest. They're not as active as they were back way back when, for, for a lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, not because they weren't successful, uh, quite the opposite, because they were so successful that uh, it seemed to many people there was not much left to be done in terms of uh, making the case which is what their primary interests were. Um, but the, um, the uh, membership of both the British and American societies of psychical research reads like a who's who of the time. They were the intellectual of the Victorian age on both sides of the Atlantic. They included, again, people like uh, uh, William James, uh, 
Henry Sidgwick, um, who was the first, he's a Cambridge University philosopher, the first president of the uh, British Society for Psychical Research. There was um, um, Sir Oliver Lodge, who was one of the top physicists at the time, he was knighted for his accomplishments, and many others, Lord Balfour, and uh, for, the, for their efforts, these people were... Um, well, they risked their reputation, and they had to endure uh, ridicule. So absolutely, yeah. but you know, and it does—it's <clears throat> such a wonderful thing to know that you can't communicate with those who have passed over. And I—I I think that it—it uh, it, it gives people hope as far as continuing on, and 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 of course being able to communicate with loved ones. Um, it's not quite like the telephone. But uh, it 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 is something that is um, profoundly unique. And there was a a wonderful test. That I believe I, I believe it was in England, but I'm not sure now. Where um, they decided to have a chess match with a chess master who had passed over and a chess master who was here in this country. You want to talk about that one? Because that was fascinating. Yeah, sure. Um, I don't believe that was in England. I think it was uh, um, somewhere in Europe. I'm not entirely sure where it was. Anyway, um, um, well, the whole story began in 1985 when the asset manager and amateur chess player, Dr. Wolfgang, Wolfgang Eisenbeis, decided to initiate a chess match between a living and deceased person. He... Um, uh, was acquainted with a medium named Robert Rollins, who at that time was quite elderly and who knew, knew nothing about chess. And he gave him a list of deceased chess masters and asked him to contact one who might be interested in having a game with a living chess master. And um, he was also able to persuade Victor Korchnoi, who was then ranked third in the world, to participate. He was ranked second in the world for over a decade, and he's been described as one of the best chess players of all time. So anyway, he gave, uh, Eisenbeis gave Rollins a list of deceased grandmasters, asked him to find one. And finally, a communicator came claiming to be the deceased Hungarian grandmaster, Giza Marcosi, Maroxi, sorry, confirmed his willingness to play. And then he opened the game. And um, he also communicated. Um, I'm looking at my book right now because I haven't got all this stuff memorized. Um <laughs> But he provided his motivation for participation in the game. This is this is part of the communication that uh, came through the medium Rollins from the deceased chess master Moroxi. He said, I will be at your disposal in this peculiar game of chess for two reasons. First, because I, I want to do something to aid mankind living on earth, to become convinced that death does not end everything. But instead, the mind is separated from the physical body and comes up to us in a new world, where individual life continues to manifest itself in a new, unknown dimension. Second, being a Hungarian patriot, I want to guide the eyes of the world into the direction of my beloved Hungary a little bit. Both of these items convinced me to participate in that game with the thought of being at everyone's service. So then anyway... Um, they participated in the game. What would happen was uh, Rollins would make his move, or Rollins would receive the move, apparently from deceased Maroxi, 
and then he would pass it on to Eisenbeis, who would pass it on to Korchnoi. Korchnoi would uh, study the board, make his move, and pass his move on to uh, Eisenbeis, who in turn would pass it on to Rollins, who in turn would seemingly pass it on to uh, Maroxi, and so forth. And that continued on and on. And then three months into the game, the 27th move, Korchnoi, I mean, that then ranked third in the world, as, as I said. He comment, commented on the quality of his opponents played. And here's a quote from Korchnoi. During the opening phase, Moroxy showed weakness. His play is old-fashioned. Now remember, Moroxy died around 1930. Uh So his play is old-fashioned, but I must confess that my last moves have not been too convincing. I'm not sure I will win. He has compensated the faults of the opening by a strong endgame. In the endgame, the ability of a player shows up, and my opponent plays very well. Amazing. Yeah. Well, anyone who's interested. Well, you know, it it to me, it's it's such validation that, um, and and of course, this was before the time of you know, the computer being as as you know accessible as it is today, and so before the computer actually, so that so that there were many weeks, sometimes months, between when the moves were made. And the communicators, the communicators, the the um, the mediums didn't know anything about chess. So what they were going back and forth with meant very little to them. And you know, it's just such wonderful validation that um, there there was definitely a chess game going on between two chess masters. And I think it 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 ended where where one one of the um, was it one of the one of the mediums passed away or there was the game ended in a draw I think. No, no, the game ended on the forty seventh move when Maroxi resigned. Um, he resigned ah. because uh, it, it was inevitable that uh, he would have lost some time in the next five or six moves. Um, the game is described like all the moves are listed in chess style on page 207 of my uh, of my book, and I show where Maroxi resigned and the reason why he resigned. Um, but remember, um, yeah, the reason he lost the game, according to most chess experts who've analyzed, is because of his weak opening moves. But you see that those weak moves were considered fine way back in the 1920s. They're looked askance at today because, well, modern chess theories made remarkable advances. So that appears to oh, be yeah. the reason why he lost the game. Even though, remember, um, at one point, Korchnoi said, I'm not sure I will win. Um, Usually people say, well, I mean, (laughs) maybe this was, the game was somehow hoaxed using a a computer (laughs) and a chess program. So um, a fellow named uh, Vernon Knapp, he's former South African chess champion. He reanalyzed the case in 2007 with the aid of a chess playing computer program. And he see if a chess computer could analyze, could replicate the game. And um, he compared, he basically uh, had the computer respond to uh, Maroxi's moves, the moves that were given by Rollins to um, Eisenbeis. And um, so then he wrote, and here's a quote from Nepe, Maroxi played human-type moves, and the computer simulation played computer-type moves, correcting what it thought were inferior moves despite their illogicality. 
Meroxi clearly played the end game far better than the computer, which might have been expected. This is not only because of Meroxi's known end game versatility, because the wide number of choices a computer has in its end game give it too many alternatives. Humans understand chess strategy better than computers and can thrive on the logic required. So there's a few reasons why um, uh, that uh, the game could not have been hoaxed using a computer program. Um, one reason is that computer technology, both software and hardware, was simply not advanced in the 1980s to play at the master. You know, it was not advanced enough to give a chess grand master a challenging game. It's also unlikely that a software would be programmed to use an old-fashioned opening. And finally, um, computer programs cannot simulate a human style of play. Uh, okay. Computer moves by a computer are detectably inhuman. Uh, they don't do, they don't play like a human being. And finally, um, a computer certainly couldn't simulate the unique style of play of an accomplished chess player such as uh, Moroxi. Wow. It, it, to me, it was, it, it was so fascinating to read through the whole, the whole process. I think one thing that, that became very clear is that, that, that once passed over, um, people, people had access, access to their frame of references um, when they were on this side, but that, they they didn't continue to grow as far as you know learning computer technology and understand they they seem to be locked into that that time frame that 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 level of consciousness or wisdom however you want to put it that that was there when they were alive on this side so that um it, it's i think that's something that should be taken into consideration if somebody is um consulting a medium to check into someone on the other side to ask advice about something that was happening today and they passed away 20 or 30 years ago, the the advice may not be as good as someone who had passed over last week. Um, so it's it's something something for somebody to consider if you're going to if you're going to go um, talking to a medium about with, and connecting to somebody on the other side. I, I thought that the testing that went on um, over that time frame, over that, that century, um, was profound. And the people who were doing the testing uh, made every effort possible to uh, set things up so that nobody could say, well, it was because of you know, extra, extra special, extra sensory per- perception. Um, or, or anything like that. They they did everything in their power to uh, foil fraud of any sort. And the cross communication um, tests that were done uh, were were just phenomenal. Um, where you where people were getting fragments of the message in different continents, and when put together, they they solved the problem and and stuff like that. But but. The mediums had no idea what the information they were getting meant. You, you want to go a little bit into that one because that cross communication test was just phenomenal. Well, you mean the cross correspondences? Correspondence, yes. Yeah. 
Um, well, that's really the icing on the cake. Even if we did not have the cross correspondences, in my opinion, and the opinion of many other people, the evidence would already be convincing. Um, mm-hmm. The only there's only two alternatives that are put forward: there's fraud, and then there's super extrasensory perception. Um, fraud is completely out of the question by anybody who takes looks into this stuff seriously. I mean, most of these mm-hmm. mediums who were uh, investigated by the, the SPR were um, not professional mediums. They were the wives of politicians and physicians. They used pseudonyms. They were not paid. Um, they did not want their names being used. Uh, so they were called, you know, Mrs. Willett and Mrs. Holland and so forth. Um, there's absolutely and there's absolutely no reason to believe there was fraud on the part of the, uh, the mediums or on the part of the investigators. The investigators were also not fools. You could say, well, they were just a bunch of idiots who were duped. No, they weren't. They were the intellectual elite the Victorian age on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, so, yeah, um, I would like to say something about, uh, first of all, super extrasensory perception. That's the other uh, alternative explanation that is offered by, uh, by the skeptics. Um, there's a lot of problems with that. Um, what the first problem, of course, is simply the volume, speed, and accuracy of uh, the uh, communication shown. That's far anything, any evidence, any of the anecdotal or experimental evidence for extrasensory perception. There's really no comparison. Um, but, but then that's not just all. I mean, uh, there are cases which a purpose characteristic of the deceased, but contrary to that of the sitters, were displayed. Um, there's also cases in which the communication seemed from the perspective of the deceased. And that happened in the, uh, the chess master, the chess game case we just discovered. Mm-hmm. There's, there's cases in which the personality of the deceased was accurately portrayed. Uh, in many cases, enough to convince living friends and relatives parted that they were actually communicating with, their, with the, uh, the actual person that they knew. And then finally, I mean, there's the manifestation of skills. No amount of perception, whether it's extrasensory or otherwise, can allow someone to um, instantly and temporarily acquire skills that normally require years and years of practice, whether it's uh, playing chess or whether it's um, philosophizing or uh, knowledge of the classics uh, or speaking a foreign language. Uh, There's absolutely no evidence that any sort of perception, extrasensory or otherwise, can allow somebody to instantly and temporarily acquire skills, skills that require the deceased person who's ostensibly communicating years of practice to acquire. So it just stretches the super ESP hypothesis farther and farther and farther until it's just past the breaking point. Um, With regards to the cross-correspondences, those are fascinating. Um, What fascinates me about those is that they seem to have been initiated and initiated by people on the other side, starting with uh, Frederick Myers, one of the original founders of the British Society for Psychical Research. He was a Cambridge scholar of classics. And he died in the year 1900, and shortly after he died, uh, uh, messages from Myers started to come through. And he was saying, uh, you know, I'd like to prove my identity, but I'm not sure how, I'm working on it. And then shortly after, these enigmatic seemingly meaningless messages began to come through from mediums in uh, England and uh, the United States and in India, uh, 
a, a niece of Rudyard Kipling, who I mentioned earlier, was in India. She was a, a, an amateur medium as well. So these messages started to come through from these female mediums in three different countries, and they seemingly made no sense. But eventually, somebody, a secretary for the uh, British Society for Psychical Research, realized that some sort of pattern was being was being uh, uh, being displayed, especially when there was a message that came through um, Mrs. Holland in India. Uh, it was a seemingly meaningless message, but then send it. The message then there was a uh, followed by a message that said, "Send it to Five Selwyn Gardens, Cambridge." Signed Myers. And she didn't send it there. She sent it to the uh, British Society. And then there was a woman there who was collating all these messages. And she knew that Five Selwyn Gardens was the, uh, um, Cambridge was the address of one of the other mediums. And so she realized at that point what was happening. There were seemingly meaningless messages coming through mediums in three different countries, um, which when put together were like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. And so each individual medium had absolutely no idea what the messages meant. So how could they possibly transmit um, uh, transmit additional information which would complete the puzzle? They had no idea what the piece of the puzzle meant, individually, I mean. So these were the famous cross-correspondences. They add to... Um, the uh, um, display of personality characteristics, they add to the, dis to the manifestation of skills. Those are already convincing enough. What they add is demonstration of planning, um, planning and intent from the other side. Um, be because if the individual medium hasn't got a clue what the individual message means, how could she possibly transmit the, uh, the remaining pieces of the puzzle to other mediums? So... Yeah, it was fascinating to to read through those, and you know, I certainly I, I I believe in all of this. So that to me, it was just it was more validation on top of validation on top of validation that 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 this information is out there. And I, I you know, your book title in many ways doesn't doesn't give people. Um, the full spectrum of what it is you're covering in this book, and I would assume the other books as well, because I found that that it it just kept I kept saying, well, of course, you know, and and the 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 element of of an afterlife, the element of being able to communicate with the afterlife, the element of of being able to be on the other side, and 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 often remember a past life as, as happened with a number of children um, and, and still to this day happens. I think that one of the things that I found most fascinating was the fact that that most children, not most, but well, many children, uh, I, I don't want to be too general here, but, but do remember the past life and, and will speak of it and will bring things forward in time and I guess it's by the age of, I think, eight, you said, six or eight, that they, the memory of the other life kind of goes back in consciousness and, and the material they're gathering on this present life takes over so that the memories of the past aren't as 
vivid as they are. Is it with all children or, or just certain children that have that kind of remembrance? Oh, no, it's not all children by any means. Um, Dr. Ian Stevenson, he was a psychiatrist. He started uh, the modern investigation of um, children who remember previous lives. Um, he started off in India, and he came across a case where a, a, a child claimed to be somebody else who lived and died in another town. And he thought this was some sort of fascinating case of a psychiatric disorder. He thought it was some cultural thing. Um, but the child was insistent, and uh, he recorded the details, Stevenson, I mean, and then sent it to a friend who lived in this city and asked him to corroborate, you know, investigate these details, see if they could corroborate them. Much to his surprise, his friend wrote back and uh, corroborated all the details, which uh, really amazed Stevenson. So he applied for a grant and he studied uh, studied these cases of children who seemed to remember previous lives. Um, to answer your question, um, the ch- children who seem to recall previous lives uh, well, their previous lives seem to have something in common. Usually a premature, violent death, sense of unfinished business. That's usually... Now, why that should be, I don't know. Maybe that's why Maybe that's why they're back, uh, back in the flesh. But uh, that seems to be the common denominator that Stevenson um, found. A short uh, life uh, often ended violently, either um, through violence or uh, some sort of accident. I have found that quite often, um, and this is just my own observation, it's not documented anyplace anyhow, but I have found that, that if you pay attention to the tendencies of a child, if, if, if the parent is paying attention to the things they're interested in, the talents that they have, the, the things that they are drawn to at an early age, it often will forecast where they would be happiest as as an adult, and that 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 if if you encourage those things they're interested in, they have a a better chance at a successful life and a happy life, as opposed to you know you have to get married and be a doctor or a lawyer and you know go to college and graduate college and get married and have two and a half children and a cat and a dog. Um, so so I'm I'm seeing a greater flexibility in in a lot of parents today paying attention to tendencies so that so they can help to encourage development in those areas because those are areas that suggest success would be there but but certainly not mm-hmm. pushing them but at least encouraging the children to experiment to a degree that is appropriate for them at the time. I, I know Okay, I, I don't have Yeah, I have no proof for that. All it is is my observation and, and I'm seventy six so I have a lot of you know, I have a lot of observation to back it up, but no no actual study or, or proof that way. Yeah, well I don't have kids myself so I can't really comment on that. I do think it's um it's uh, wise to expose our kids uh, to as many different things as possible and uh, see what they like. You know, you can never tell what somebody's going to really like until they're actually exposed to it, right? Um, but, I mean, I mean, the best, the best advice we can give anyone uh, starting out is simply follow your passion. Right. Absolutely. 
And I was I was gonna I I kept thinking often on on when I was reading about all these children, how does that explain or support the selection of the Dalai Lama when he passes? Theoretically, the Dalai Lama uh, will reincarnate. You know, how does that come into yeah, play here? Yeah. Because yeah, I'm fam- I'm familiar with that. I used to live near Tibet, believe it or not, in, in uh, western China. Um, but um, so I met a lot of um, Tibetans. But as far as I know, I'm not an expert in Buddhism. I'm not an expert in uh, Tibetan Buddhism. Um, as far as I know, the Dalai Lama is always selected uh, by testing a child to see if the child recognizes certain objects and so forth. So each Dalai Lama is supposed to be a reincarnation of the previous one. Um, I think that the present Dalai Lama, I just read briefly somewhere that when he was a child, when he was he was tested, he passed the test with flying colors. They gave him some possessions of the previous Dalai Lama, along with uh, some other possessions that were not did not belong to him, and he picked up the ones that did and didn't make mistakes. Yeah, but uh, reincarnation is not. Um, is not something that's unique to uh, to Buddhism or to Hinduism. I mean, reincarnation is found uh, is found all over the globe. I mean, um, some of the North American tribes believed in reincarnation, and uh, uh, some of the ancient Greeks, and uh, yeah, it's found all over the globe. I'm just uh, looking here to find a little bit more. Because um, I wrote, yeah, um, let's see here. Yeah, here's how I open up my chapter one. Reincarnation is an ancient belief, one found in many widely separated parts of the world. Westerners frequently associate the belief in reincarnation exclusively with the Hindus and Buddhists of Southeast Asia, but this is a misconception. Despite the best efforts of Christian missionaries, a belief in reincarnation persists among the tribes of East and West Africa, the native tribes of Northwest North America, the Eskimo of the Arctic, the Trobriand Islanders of the South Pacific, the Anu of Northern Japan, the Druses of Lebanon, and the Aborigines of Central Australia. There are some religions outside the scope of the Judeo-Christian tradition that do not include a belief in reincarnation. But as one leading researcher in the field wrote, nearly everyone outside the range of of Orthodox Christianity, Judaism, Islam, and science, the last being a secular religion of many persons, believes in reincarnation. And it was also common in many parts of the ancient world. It was common in Greece, the Vikings of Scandinavia. And here's the really amazing part. I'm just reading from my book here. In Southern Europe, at least some Christians believed in reincarnation up until the 6th century. Although it was not a part of official instruction, leaders of the church appear to have tolerated the belief as acceptable until the Council of Nice in 553, Common Era. It has been argued that the actions of this council did not constitute a binding official ban as the council was not called by the Pope. However, a decline in the acceptability of the idea set in among Orthodox Christians at about this time and has persisted ever since. Yeah, so it's a I, myth. I know that, that, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah I, 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 again, I am an advocate of it. I believe in it, and I, I think it makes a great deal of sense. Um, a creator would not create a spirit for just one shot at, at whatever here on the planet Earth. It had to be an evolutionary process, in my opinion. 
And uh, so, you know, I'm a firm believer that, that we do reincarnate, that, that we do continue a journey through time um, in different incarnations. And you quoted one of my favorite quotes at the end of your book with, uh, we are not humans on a spiritual journey, we're a spirit on a human journey. Right, right. And, and, and certainly that makes a great deal of sense. Um, and, and if we remembered every past life, we'd probably go crazy. So it's probably just as well. But but there are there are wisdoms that that you know I do feel bleed through, so that so that we are building on the experience. It isn't just we're not just freshly here. We we do have a back of uh, you know they the, they they talk of a hall of records of of the akashic records of you know that there are records that in some way, shape, or form, we have access to on a, on a spiritual level that probably enhance our growth and our journey tremendously. But, you know, we're, we're here in human form for a reason. And uh, even though we don't know the reason, we, we, we play it out. We play our hand out, I guess, is the best way to go. Um, I, I found that... that the, the reincarnation element was, was really important for me. I hit that, that part of your book and I ate it up because um, it, it adds to the richness of each lifetime knowing that you are building on something as opposed to it's a one-shot deal and, I, you know, if there's reincarnation, I'll come back and, you know, if there's karma, I'll, <laughs> I'll pay for it later, not now. Um, it, it gave, your book gives a lot of hope. And, and I think that's one of the important things that, that people should should know and understand that, that this book validates the things that you want to believe, but you aren't real sure you can. And the right. research, uh, you know, it, it just it gives somebody a tremendous amount of hope in that that okay, I'll see Sam when I get over there, or whoever, or or there will be a reuniting that that that. that this this gap that is now between us is not a permanent one. There is a there, there's an element of love that draws us together, whether they're on the other side or not. And it it makes right. well, for. The, go ahead. I'm sorry. One of the purposes that um, I mean, so, it's sometimes said by the so-called skeptics, "Oh, well, this is all just a lot of wishful thinking." There's no, there's no wishful thinking in my book. Um, I base everything upon a critical evaluation of the evidence, uh-huh. and uh, the strongest evidence. I don't look at the weakest. So, I mean, there's rational reasons to believe that, that these uh, in these things. Um, with regard to reincarnation, um, as I said earlier, uh, Stevenson found that there seems to be the common thread between these children seems to be a sense of unfinished business in the previous life. Um, it seems to be the mo- majority of the cases are people who, shall we say, died before their time. Often their lives were cut short, sometimes violently. Um, so the sense seems to be a sense of unfinished business uh, uh, concerning the previous lives of these children who claim to remember these previous lives. And... Um, it's also interesting because Frederick Myers, whom I mentioned earlier, he was the initiator, the original initiator of the cross correspondences. Um, he wrote two books later on. Uh, what was it? Beyond Human Personality and uh, I forget the name of the other one. But he wrote two books which were not cross correspondences, which were simply um, um, 
treatises on uh, the nature of the afterlife and its relation to this life. And he said, he writes that um, most people do not reincarnate again and again and again endlessly. He says in his experience, most people incarnate two, maybe three times at most. Um, he, some of the communicators describe earth life as a school place where we have to learn and once we've learned our lessons uh, then earth life loses its value and we graduate into another um, sphere or plane of existence so I don't think that anyone has to fear um, an endless uh, series of uh, incarnations on earth well I don't think anybody fears it um, I kind of think it's a wonderful trip uh, so that you know I, I uh, I, I find that the, the more you learn, the, the more you know you don't know it all, and and so you you continue your search, and it does it does again the the element of of so many people who question as to whether there is another side or um, like like um, I, I think what your book does in, in many ways is, is give not, not only hope to people, but, but there were a number, at least one person on the other side was describing what he experienced. And, you know, it's not heaven as we have pictured it. It's not Valhalla. It's not, um, you know, the, the Roman, ex, you know, ex, you know, um, explanation of, of where the other side is or, and it, and it's also not the hell people say it is. So that I, I think that that it's important too that that people understand that that um, it is a, a way station in many ways, uh, a platform to to go beyond. And you know, if you want to come back, okay. But but if you want to go on, there there is a going on. And, and towards the end of the book, you do describe uh, from the perspective of someone on the other side what he was experiencing there and I think that yeah, I'd love for you to, to talk about that a little bit okay well after I've um, established the positive case for uh, survival and beyond all reasonable doubt then the final section of my book is simply titled what the dead say in which I talk about um, well the nature of the communications that come through and uh, I'm not talking uh, in other words, not the uh, veridical communications, the ones that are meant to establish identity or, or continuing survival, but merely descriptions of um, what it's like on the other side. Um, there's remarkable consistency between uh, the descriptions of what it's like on the other side. Um, they all agree that there's various levels of existence, there's various spheres or planes, whatever you call it. Um, some of them would correspond to Hades or an unpleasant place. Um, but the first uh, plane where most of us end up would be Summerland. That's what they call it anyway. It's remarkably like okay. Earth. But you don't, you're not supposed to stay there forever. Anyway, the two, the most, um, most comprehensive description by far, in my opinion, given by uh, the deceased Frederick Myers, whom I mentioned earlier, the initiator of the cross correspondences in 1900 or 1901. He wrote two books transmitted through the medium Geraldine Cummins. Um, the first was called The Road to Immortality, and the second was Beyond Human Personality. 
So that's described as being, I've got one of them in my hands right now. Uh, road to mortality, being a description of the life hereafter with evidence of the survival of human personality with a foreword by Sir Oliver Lodge, the physicist. So if people want to learn more about um, the nature of the afterlife, well, they could read my, <laughs> they could read the final chapter of my third book, um, and that will lead them on to other um, sources, original sources, such as the two books I just mentioned by, uh, by fr- apparently written postmortemly by uh, Frederick Myers. It's it just, um, for me, it was, it was fascinating. You, you used a term that I'm very familiar with. My, my early work was, was in the spiritualist church, so the element of Summerland resonated, you know, immediately. Um, that's, what, that's what the spiritualist church calls the other side when we, when we cross over. Um, I think that having a knowledge of, of the material like, like you've put forward here in, in your one book, and I would assume the other two books as well, um, is, is very comforting. And I think that, that people reading the book will come out of it with a, a calmer perception as to the transition between this plane and, and the other side. I think also uh, you, you talk a lot. You, you talked a lot about near-death experiences, and, and with my familiarity with people that have had uh, near-death experiences, you know, coincides a lot with with yours in that they come back with a a, a change of attitude, a change of perception that is quite prof- profound. Yes, that, uh, yeah, well, well, the uh, defenders of super ASP try to explain near-death experiences as some form of clairvoyance, um, you know, uh, distant vision, whatever you want, clear vision, whatever you want to call it. That's where people seem to perceive something that um, far away, accurately perception. That was used, that was investigated by the CIA and the, and, uh, the United States Army uh, during, the, uh, during the Cold War. They're trying to spy on the other side, and they had some successes with locating uh, down planes and so forth. Um, eventually, the program folded because of uh, funding was cut off. Um, no one's sure exactly why. It could have been the objection of certain um, uh, U.S. senators because of their religious beliefs, but nobody's sure why. Um, yeah, anyway, so some people will claim that, uh, well, the near-death experience is actually a form of clairvoyance. But there's a lot of problems with that. One problem with that is that clairvoyant um, perceptions are not typically from position immediately above the person's body. They're also, they also don't typically occur when we have every reason, every medical reason to believe that the person's brain was either severely impaired or entirely non-functioning. And finally, as you mentioned, clairvoyant perception um, Perceptions are not, uh, they don't change people. They don't change someone's uh, attitude and values over the long term. So, super ESP cannot account for the uh, near-death experience any more than than it can account for uh, seeming communications from the departed via human mediums. Well, there's a a book written by a physician, I think it was a surgeon, who... um and I can't remember the title of it now, but 
he actually physically died. He he was he was dead, and um, he was able to look down on his body. He was able to you know re- relate what was going on, and clinically he was dead. His brain and heart were not functioning, and yet consciousness was still there. And I think that's that's one of the the wonderful things. That, I mean, I mean, near death experience is probably not a pleasant thought to go into, but but once you're in it you begin to understand that that you are still you you're not you're not suddenly not you your personality is still there and you're observing what's going on around you even though you're not feeling it but you're seeing it and i i think that for for anyone to go through that experience suddenly the realization of what death is since you're in the middle of it um, is not as frightening as as or or disquieting as as once it is to someone that hasn't gone through that kind of experience. Yeah, well, there's there's you know there's several um, common after effects of the near death experience. Um, probably the most common is the loss of the fear of death. So mm-hmm. the people who have actually had those experiences are convinced that uh, yeah they actually they actually survived the um, survived clinical death. Clinical death, the medical definition of death is no heartbeat, no spontaneous breathing, and uh, fixed dilated pupils that do not um, constrict when bright light is shone into them. That indicates there's no activity in the brainstem. That's the most primitive part of our brain, and it handles, uh, among other things, basic reflexes, such as... um, such as well the dilation of the pup or well dilation of the pupils when we're in dim light and the constriction of our pupils uh, when we're in bright light you know to get larger and smaller um, mm-hmm. so there's simply no question that hundreds of thousands if not millions of people have uh, experienced loose uh, clear perception and lucid consciousness during moments when there's every medical reason to believe that these people these people's brains were either severely impaired, entirely non-functioning. In other words, during a period of clinical death. Um, then they were brought back from clinical death by modern methods of resuscitation. And uh, approximately 10, 10 to 15% of these people reported uh, uh, these experiences. I think also it, the other thing that it, that it, that it validates is that your brain is not you. Your your brain is something. Your brain your brain is an instrument that we use to to um, right. interface with the material world. Yeah, it's like the computer. It's it's our it's our computer that that you know um, it 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 keeps the body moving. It keeps the body breathing. It keeps the synapses synapsing, and and but but it is not. You as an individual, or a, in my terms, a spirit. It is not the spirit that is you that is traveling forward or coming back to this life, and and so it doesn't. The spirit does not rest within the brain. It is separate from the brain, and that's where the personality is too. So, so it's it's sort of like, um, I I would think I I've I've had I taught special education for. 25 years, and I often felt that that a lot of the kids that I had in my classroom, their spirits were 
were so full of love and so different than the spirits of the the kids that that were in regular classrooms and such that it was like you know they they have chosen this for some reason but it's it's amazing the the different frequency that they operate on now intellectually they may not be as competent as as others but on a spiritual level the spirit within them it was it was amazing. It was an amazing experience to work with them for 25 years. Um, couldn't have picked a better occupation if I had tried. Wow. And I think that, I think that, that especially the Down syndrome children, um, spectacular, uh, full of love, just so full of love. It, it, it's amazing. And I often thought because they had an extra chromosome, that maybe they were the next step in evolution. That you know, when that hmm. that that paired, when they when they got the extra pair, the one to the to the odd one that they have, then that that may be the next step in evolution. I can't prove that, but it just seemed makes sense to me because they were so pure in spirit that maybe that's where we're going or, or are meant to go at some point in time in our evolution. I'll have okay. to come back in another life and check it out. <laughs> but, but so, so especially in my, excuse me, in my experience with the near-death experience people, they all came back and they wanted to serve humanity. And and I'm sure there are some that that didn't. I mean, I'm not sure. I, I'm sure it's not a hundred percent. But, but each of the ones that that I talked to in in this in this short small study that I did. Um, they don't fear death, and they really want to help humanity on, to some level. I mean, they didn't all, you know, quit their jobs and go to the mountaintops, but but they turned their attention towards how can they help their fellow man, which I think is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And I I, I don't wish a near death experience on everyone, so we have a better society. But I often wish, I often think it might be better off if we had. Um, <clears throat> So so with all of your books, you know, there's definitely such a spiritual flavor to the one that I read that I would I would probably assume that, that it's the same is, is evident in other places, wanting to help people understand that what often has been described as, you know, as fraud and, and things like that, it, there's a reality behind it, and it's a part of our experience. And... Um, you have validated so beautifully um, the the path, the near death experiences and the reincarnation and the fact that there is a place that we go beyond this this time frame. Um, what is your hope for? Are, are you, do you have more books planned to go into this direction, or are you just waiting to see what what unfolds? I'm waiting to see what unfolds. Um, I may write I may write uh, um, a book or two on other topics, other controversial topics. But uh, I mean, I'm not entirely sure I can write any more on this, these subjects. Of, um, I mean, <laughs> if I may say so myself, I mean the treatment was exhaustive, um, both on uh, yeah. Well, well, on, on 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 what I read, yes, you it was exhaustive, for sure. Um, in the areas that, that that I did read, and you did such a thorough job of it, it's it's kind of sad to think that that 
there isn't more work in this area, um, at least that's part of modern education, where where people can become comfortable with these gifts and these talents, and 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 is encouraged to um, to expand them and to grow with them and to trust trust their intuition, their insight, and and I I, I don't know I I, I guess putting meditation of some sort into a classroom is something that will never happen, but um, at least in public schools. But it's such a shame that this is a part of our education that um, the children today are being actually denied. Mm. Well, I don't know about that. Uh, I haven't seen any statistics, but I mean... There's a lot of people out there who would agree with uh, you and I on the basics of what we're talking about here today. Um, I can't really speak to it, but I suppose their kids grow up uh, with some basic understanding or at least exposure to these ideas. I would hope so, because you know we are a very technically, technologically um, oriented um, species at this point in time. And you know the the leaning is towards more technology. It's towards more science. It's towards all of these areas where the the spiritual, the uh, the mystical, is not incorporated into their everyday life. And you know I have two grandchildren, um, and they have been brought up not with any of these these um, concepts available to them. I mean, their parents are great parents, and they've exposed them to a, a, a lot of things, but they are they are of a fundamental religion, and so therefore um, this kind of material does not come into their frame of reference. And it's, it's, it's sad uh, to think that, that they aren't given uh, the comfort of knowing all of these things, and, and Having it part of their of their life, um, you know, when they get old enough, you know, I can certainly expose them to some of the material that that I've read and that I've experienced, and and my belief. But you know, they, they are in very formative years, and I have a feeling it would be frowned upon if I started to try to slip this stuff in into their education at this point. Anyhow, the time will come. But yeah. Well. The- yeah. But you and I, I, I'm sure that I know I did not grow up with this material available to me. I had to find it on my own as an adult. I, I don't know about you, but um, was this part of your upbringing when you were younger? No, not at all. I occasionally heard or read what I would uh what were described as true ghost stories, and like everyone else, I wondered, uh, but I didn't really think about it a whole lot. Um, no, I was uh, I was pretty much an agnostic through college. Um, um, yeah, so uh, I, I think yeah, I'm wondering if if this is something again, frame of reference is really important, and and level of consciousness. So that I'm, I'm wondering if it, it takes whether it's a level of consciousness or whether it is 
being surrounded by the possibility of this material that you you send out, you know, you, you start looking into it. I know the Bible talks about it. In 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 one case, Jesus, you know, talks to his disciples and says, "I told you this in the past life, didn't you?" you know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but he does he does speak of of reincarnation, so that it's there, yeah. and yet it's, yeah. it's 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 never it's not highlighted by by any you know religious organization and um you know you you see all of the material that's out there and it's not meant to replace in any way shape or form a religious belief it's meant to enhance it and and i'm wondering if religious organizations are threatened by this material and therefore they don't want to share it incorporate it or talk about it well, I don't think that uh, all religious organizations are the same. I mean, there's tr- tremendous variety. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, the Church of England is only super, only superficially resembles uh, the Catholic Church. I mean, granted, there's some basic ideas that are the same, but uh, and some of the ceremonies and rituals are the same. But I mean, there's differences of opinion and so forth. And uh, same with the uh, the uh, Greek Orthodox and the Russian Orthodox. Uh, they tend, yeah. So, I mean. I don't think they should be treated as one monolithic group. Um, there's there's differences of opinion uh, every bit as much within the religious communities as there uh, is anywhere else. Well, if you go back to when these religions were were being formed, a lot of this material is 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 in there, and then over time they seem to have taken it out and and become in, in many cases. Um, organizations rather than a, a religious belief and dogma has been put in and 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 I I sometimes I I think that the religious material is is interesting and fascinating and it's just that it 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 shuts the door in so many places where if the door were open everything would be enhanced um, the the concept of you know, there is another side. There is a way of communicating with that other side. Uh, I today, in in my experience, um, well, I guess I guess my question to you is: everyone has the the ability to be psychic. Everyone has that ability to to trust their intuition, to go with 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 where we are inspired to go and and to follow our our bliss, as you said earlier. But when it comes to mediumship, are you finding there are as many mediums out there today who are able to do this kind of material than that were... Absolutely not. No, absolutely not. I mean... No, the answer is no. Uh, the, the reason for that uh, was several reasons, but one of the big reasons is uh, the invention of television. I mean, before, you know, back in the, uh, the 1800s, there obviously were, was no television, there wasn't even radio. And so what did people do in the evening? Well, they played cards, they, they got together and played musical instruments, they sang, they played various types of games. And uh, once... Uh, once news of the uh, Fox sisters um, became well-known, people started dabbling in mediumship. They started seeing if they could do it. That explains uh, why there were just so many 
impressive um, mediums uh, from the 19th century. Um, people today have other things to do, namely television, if that's actually something to do, with their time in the evening. And so there's there's less there's less interest in. Uh, and besides, I mean, people say, well, why aren't they you know why aren't they finding mediums of this power around today? Well, first of all, there aren't as many people involved in it today either in terms of um, actual mediums or in terms of investigators. And uh, I'm, not, I'm not entirely sure I um, think there's anything wrong with that because I think that the uh, British and American societies established their case beyond a reasonable doubt. I, don't th- I think that uh, the emphasis today should not be on necessarily exploring mediumship. If somebody wants to do it, that's fine. Um, there's Gary Schwartz at the University of Arizona. He's looking. He's investigating it, and there's a few others, and that's fine. But the um, the interest today has shifted into other lines of research, uh, primarily uh, the near death experience. And most of the researchers there, they're either psychiatrists or they're cardiologists. Cardiologists, in particular, are um, particularly qualified to examine this because they're 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 often resuscitating people who have crossed the point of clinical death. And like I said before, you know, there's a heart attacks. And like I said before, about somewhere between 10 and 20% of these people who are resuscitated after having a heart attack report, report uh, um, well, lucid thought and clear perception, which give every indication of having occurred at a time when there's every medical reason to assume or to think that their brains were either severely, their brain function rather was either severely impaired or entirely non-functioning. In other words, they were past the point of clinical death. So, um, yeah, that's where most, that's where I see most of the research being directed today. Well, when you when you talk about like, for instance, the Oracle of Delphi, that that was somebody who was in an entranced state and, and would give you know, information through them. Of course, then it had to be interpreted, so I don't know if it was the interpreter or the actual um, oracle that was that was actually doing the talking. I have found that the channeled material, and I, I use air quotes on that because it's the only way I can define it, the material that comes through a channel, like your, your ladies and... and um, and, and, and a few other people that that I that I you know think are valid channels. Um, channel material is is beautiful material. It's beautifully written. It's spiritually oriented. It's it has a positive um, a positive flow to it that is profoundly gorgeous. So so the the channel material is still out there. It's a matter of it's there's not a call for it, I guess, or or people are not touching into it, um, and, and it's a shame because the material that comes through a medium who is truly channeling from the higher realms is very educational and and beautiful, and you know, are you going to, you know, it. It can change your life only in that it changes your perception and makes you a better person. It's not controlling and it's not manipulative, but it it gives you a deeper understanding as to the spiritual side of you 
as opposed to the physical side that is trudging its way through this lifetime. And, hmm. um, you know, I, I, the Uranthia book comes to mind as a, as a, um, a source of channel material. It's, it's heavy duty stuff, you know, it's not for everybody. Um, Paul Selig is another channel who has, has put out some beautiful information. And again, it's not manipulative. It's it's meant to enhance your understanding of the spirit that you carry within you and the spirit that is walking through this lifetime. But you have definitely, with your books, um, convinced, I would think, anybody who is giving this material a fair chance that, that, that there is survival after death. There is reincarnation. That there, there are um, these elements that that you can um, you can use to enhance your life. I mean, the the I mean, I understand the purpose of your book was to pull together the scientific evidence, but you make such a great case for all of this material. Um, where does one take it? Hmm. I mean, where does one take it? it? Yeah, where does one take it? Well, that depends on the individual, doesn't it? I mean, what we do with this information, we can, we can. Uh, I mean, there's psych- psychologists have a term called cognitive dissonance, and that refers to an uncomfortable state of tension that results when we're faced with evidence that contradicts our preconceived ideas or opinions. And there's two ways of dealing with this uncomfortable state of cognitive dissonance. We can either reject the objectionable evidence, dismiss it, or we can change our opinions. Well, what do you think is easier to do? Uh, dismiss the evidence or change our opinion? The so-called well, skeptics, many of them anyway, not all of them, but many of them, um, they, simply, uh, they simply reject the evidence because they don't want to change their minds. They can't be bothered for whatever reason. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of emotion involved in what the... Um, the um, so-called skeptics are uh, are uh, are doing well, obviously. Um, but anybody who, first of all, has interest in in this concept and reads your books, first of all, I don't think a skeptic would read your entire book. So anybody who makes it to the end, um, I, I don't see how they can help but say, okay, he proved the case, and this is interesting. And it, yeah. it, you know, it, it can change your life if you're, if, if you're so persuaded by it that, that it changes the way that you address your reality. And that's, that's, what, that's what I see with it. It's, it's sort of like, okay, you've proved your point. And if people have read all three of your books, which which I think is a really good idea, um, then then since these phenomena have been proven beyond a shadow of a doubt, in my opinion, um, then what does that mean for my life personally? What what will I do? How will I shift my life and my perspective? in order to incorporate these concepts into it, that I, I think it 
it will in many ways, if that's, if that's the way a person addresses it, it will enhance their life greatly because then they aren't just in a physical reality addressing the physical and not paying attention to the rest. It, it's all, it, it's, a to, it's a bigger picture. It's a more total picture as to how spiritually to live your life. Um, and again, it doesn't replace religion at all. It, it enhances it. Um, as to how you address your reality in, in a more spiritual form, taking into consideration that all of these other things are now in play, the fact that there is a life after this life, that, that there is a way of communicating with those on the other side, that there is the element of physical phenomena, the psychic phenomena is, is a very real thing. If all of those become a reality in your life, you don't have to be a practitioner of any sort, but just accept the fact that they exist. It does change the way you live your life. And I think in, in that way, your books are, are quite a service and create a bridge for humanity in many ways. Well, thank you. That's very flattering. But it reminds me of um, what started the ball, the person who introduced uh, the near-death experience. Um, I believe it happened in the late 1970s by a physician named uh, Raymond Moody. He wrote a book. I believe it was called Life After Life. I've never read it myself, yep. but I've, I've, re I've read about it. Um, he coined the term, which is somewhat uh, um, suitable given what's going on in the world today. He coined the term benevolent virus to describe the effects of reading about the near-death experience um, on people who have not necessarily experienced a near-death experience. He argues that um, it's like a benevolent virus. The people who read about them and take them seriously, the experiences of others, I mean, and take them seriously, um, begin to experience some of the changes in their lives and their attitudes um, that the experience, experiencers have um, also gone through. Um, there are some after effects of the near-death experience, such as uh, increased concern for others, um, less, materi less materialistic uh, attitudes, and so forth, uh, greater spirituality, um, less dogmatism, more open-minded. And he argues that um, just reading about these experiences can also um, uh, help change uh, the beliefs and attitudes and even lifestyles of, uh, of of the readers. Oh yeah, I uh, <clears throat> I often tell people that you know when you, when you go to a psychic or a medium or anybody in that spiritual realm, whatever, that that you are opening yourself to be seated, and certainly in many ways your books sort of. In a way, you have you have become a spiritual Johnny Appleseed, so that hmm. your books, read by a skeptic or a believer, are planting seeds within the consciousness of anybody who reads that material. And in reading the material, in many ways, you have accepted it into you into yourself as a possibility, and that possibility will grow. So that, so that even if somebody reads through your book and puts it down, 
and even if they say, well, I don't know, but, but maybe, and that's probably what they would say, and it's the but maybe, which is wonderful, because if there's a but, way, but maybe in their consciousness, their consciousness will work it through even without them knowing it. And if it's appropriate, they will start to embrace it. So I think that, that you're planting amazing seeds here in the consciousness of many, and certainly anybody who listens to the show will, will have to, you know, will themselves, we, we plant seeds here. And if it's appropriate for people, they will take root and, and you know, carry the people into whatever is appropriate for them to be open to. Um, but I think the, the, the book that I read was, was phenomenal. I, I was so impressed by your research. And um, I'm going to have to read the other two, uh, <laughs> which, which happens to me frequently. And there's, there's one author that's been back a number of times, and I think he's re- read, written 10 books, and I've had to read all 10 of them. So um, this is one of those cases where you hooked me. And and I'm I'm hard to hook, so uh, I would imagine that it's going to happen. You know, with a lot of people who have looked at this material. I like your other titles too, by the way. I mean, you're right; they are more poetic. And and for anybody on a spiritual journey, they might not be drawn to the science, and but they will be drawn to the other title as well. But um, you know, publishers have their way of Im- imposing their their whatever. But um, I think that that what's important here is that you've done the research, you put it out there, and you you put it out there so that so that people are not swayed by the fact. Well, this is what he believes in. You've gone and and even covered the fraud and the other the other ways people could have cheated and and proven them wrong you know yeah well yeah thank you those those are very those are very flattering remarks so um i was going to say something what was it now um yeah um yeah i'm flattered um you have to realize though that a person has to start off with an open mind um, uh-huh. Follow the evidence wherever it leads. Follow the evidence wherever it leads. That's my creed. If the evidence leads somewhere where you're uncomfortable, well, so be it. Um, so most people have, there's a natural resistance to changing our minds because we tend to regard our opinions as possessions and we don't want to lose our possessions. And so we tend to actively resist um, accepting uh evidence that contradicts our preconceived ideas. I mean, you can see that happening in the United States today and to a lesser extent in other countries of the world. People are living in bubbles where they only yeah. visit internet sites or they only watch TV news stations that, uh, that will tell them what they want to hear. Um, they're not challenging themselves with uh, uh, evidence to the contrary. And what's happening is, of course, especially in the United States, is that uh, people are becoming more and more politically polarized. Oh yeah, I mean there are sheeple out there for sure, um, and and I think that that what I what I am so fascinated with is that 
um, and and I'm not a I'm not a biblical scholar at all, but I I remember pieces here and there that apply to my thoughts. And Jesus said, "Question everything," and if it doesn't stand up to the questioning, then there's something wrong. And that's what you've done. You've you've gone in and you've you've challenged a lot of things through the research of the people that you've investigated, and. <clears throat> And proved them, um, and proved the, the mediums for sure as, as authentic and accurate. I, I just, it's, it's sad today that there aren't, there are so many people out there that, that claim to be mediums that, that, um, and I think they believe they are, but I don't, but I don't believe they are. So you know, it's, I'm not calling them liars because I do believe they believe what they're saying. I just don't get the feeling that they're drawing from the same source that I would like to see these mediums of the 1800s, what they were drawing from. It's a completely different channel, if you will. Yeah, well, after the uh, British American Society of Psychical Research started investigating mediums, they exposed several fraudulent mediums. Um, especially some of the physical mediums, the, the ones who uh, um, purport to um, produce various physical effects. Now, I don't necessarily think that uh, all physical mediums are necessarily frauds. There's been a few that uh, uh, historically have been investigated quite carefully and seem to be the real deal, such as um, Daniel Dunglass Hume of Scotland. Mm -hmm. He was a physical medium and he was never exposed as a fraud. But uh, the the uh, members of the uh, British and American societies decided to not to stop investigating physical mediums because they just found too many frauds. There was just too many too much opportunity for fraud. Too many questions could be raised, and so they concentrated on um, mental mediums, those mediums who uh, either speak or write uh, apparent communication from the departed. And this is not this sort of evidence is permanent and objective. It's written down. It's recorded. Uh -huh. It's not based upon eyewitness testimony. So there's no there's no um, there's no uh, possibility of mistaken mistaken eyewitness testimony in these cases. As I said, the evidence is permanent and objective and can be examined at any time by anyone. So that's why in my book I don't focus on physical mediums, basically be for those reasons and because the uh, British and American societies themselves did not focus on uh, physical mediums, but rather mental mediums. Well, the physical stuff with the, the hordes that float and, and the ectoplasm and all of that stuff, I think in many ways um, in the 1800s, that was what society expected of them. And so, you know, it, it's what the traffic will bear, what, what, what your audience demands type stuff. Um, I don't feel today um, many people, I don't know, maybe they go just for fun, but I don't think that they would take that as validation of the authenticity of a, of a medium. Um, you're right, you don't see as many physical mediums out there and, and not as many trance mediums as there used to be either. Um, I'm wondering... Yeah, again, I think it's... I think that's because of television. I think there's because, that's because there's just uh, too many other distractions that, uh, yeah. Well, it could be. Uh, 
I cer certainly there's, there's that, there is that possibility. I was wondering, did was any research ever done on Edgar Casey? Edgar Casey, uh, not yeah. as far as I know, not by the British and American societies. Um, I know that uh, uh, I think he's written some books, and some books have been written about him. Um, mm -hmm. I don't. I think I read a little bit about him years ago. I can't remember very much. Uh, yeah, he did. He he went into a trance. They called him the sleeping medium, um, and. Uh, there, you you mentioned documentation. Almost every reading that he ever did is documented, as far as being written down. So um, there there is that kind of um, material out there on him. Um, so it was just a curiosity. He he kind of came after a lot of these others. So I I just uh, was curious. There there you know are are mediums out there that have made quite a reputation for themselves and yet it it often it often feels to me as though the glamour of it takes over and their authenticity diminishes in direct proportion to their fame. And that's just my opinion, folks, you know. <laughs> I have I can't prove it one way or the other, but that seems to be what happens to some of these people. But um, it, it's definitely the, the, the importance of your book is, and books are the fact that it, it, it validates one's belief in there is a place we go, there is another side, there is a summer land, there is um, life after death. And, and um, you want, can you talk just a little bit about um, what they said is about um, how they decided whether or not they were coming back here or not, or why? Uh, I don't remember writing anything about that, quite frankly. Hmm. I think it was in the very last part of the book about about um, whoever was talking about what it was like on the other side, and, and um, it you know it's not from all that I can gather from all that that, that I have read. Um, it's not a celestial rest home on the other side. It's no. It, it's 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 like almost like a a, tra a hub for for a train station. It's a place where 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 you can go many different directions in many different ways, and, and it, it it's up to the individual which way they go, so that there is a the sense of a little bit of control as to. What comes next is you know, and I think everybody always wants to know what comes next. And, and you know, we're not sitting by a stream with our shoes off fishing. There is this is a journey, and passing over is not the end of the journey. It's just it's where you transfer trains, sort of. Right, right, sure. Well, you've you've done a beautiful job here on it, and and I do want to um, recommend that the people pick up all of your books because they all have a great deal of really great information. And and anybody who who believes in all of this and is is questioned by others and says and people say prove it, your book gives them the proof. Your book, you know, you can you can. 
pick up the book and you can go through the research that's been done and you can say, you know, this does prove it. There is proof here. There is research here that's been done. And I think a lot of people don't realize that the research actually has been done. And it's been done for us um, 100 years ago, sometimes more. And and it's a matter of, you know, are you ready to accept the truth or or are you going to fight it? And, you know, you can fight it. You don't have to believe it, but it does make your life a far richer place. So, so you you have you have written these three amazing books. Are you are you sort of waiting for inspiration to hit you in another direction? Um, well, I've got a variety of interests. Um, I might be writing a book on uh, the case against uh, standardized testing. Um, by standardized testing, I don't mean what I mean is the so-called uh, aptitude test, the SAT, uh, the LSAT, the MCAT, and so forth. Um, mm-hmm. Those are all grandchildren of the uh, the IQ test. Um, I think the only thing a high IQ indicates is the ability to do well in IQ tests. Uh, the scores do not correlate with any form of actual accomplishment, no matter how you want to describe it. In some cases, the correlation is actually slightly negative. Um, so, you know, that's been banging around the back of my mind. I've got a website on the uh, the topic. So at some point, if I do write another book, it'll probably be uh, um, the critical case against uh, college admissions, standardized college admissions test. There's nothing wrong with standardized tests. That is, tests that are follow a common standard. The problem is multiple choice, those multiple choice standardized tests, because um, the multiple choice format um, rewards superficial thinking. And it's also been shown that uh, in some ways it penalizes uh, students who are deeper thinkers because they think Uh about the questions more instead of just quickly choosing an answer and then moving on to the next question. And so they get bogged down. Um, Many of these uh, so-called, well, these tests so-called aptitude test, the questions are deliberately ambiguous. It's deliberately, it could, it could be A or it could be C. I mean, you, and the students with the deeper minds are the ones who are going to be troubled by this ambiguity and they're going to, expect, going to spend more time and effort and thought trying to think them through. And as a result, they get penalized with lower scores. Whereas oh, um, well, they're more superficial competitors to be through. IQ tests, you, you know, usually just just measure potential. They don't actually measure intelligence. They give you a potential. No, I disagree. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Barbara. I disagree with that. I don't think they measure anything okay. at all except the ability to do well on multiple choice tests. Uh, and the scores don't correlate with any form of actual accomplishment. Um, I could go so on and on about this. Is, is this just something that they've put in play and they're, they've invested in it and therefore they're going to stand by it whether it works or not? We use them for a simple reason, money. Um, yeah. the, uh, the testing, what is it called? The education, there's a, the biggest testing company is called, the, call themselves the Educational Testing Service. They, dis, they describe themselves as a nonprofit organization. That's true, they're nonprofit in the accounting sense. They don't have any shareholders. They were founded by a grant from the Carnegie Foundation at the end of the Second World War. So they don't have any shareholders, but that doesn't mean they're not interested in making money. It just means uh-huh. that the employees keep all the money. They're, they're extremely, they're rolling in the dough. 
So the reason they're not, they make plenty of money and their motivation is to make plenty of money. So why do colleges use these tests? Why do universities, many universities use these tests? The reason is it just makes their decision process a lot simpler and a lot easier. If a, if a university gets a thousand applicants, all they can do is say, well, I'll, we don't want to go through a thousand applicants. We'll just uh, set the cutoff score for the SAT at this arbitrary level, and then we'll just we'll just examine the top 20% and you know make our selection from that. Um, well, and then that means that means that, that high schools um, are are teaching the kids to to take a test as opposed to actually think critically. Exactly. I'm, and um, you have to remember this is that the universities do not pay for the tests. The people who pay for the tests are the students. The people who spend time preparing for these tests are the students. People who spend time um, paying coaching schools to improve their test scores are the students. The students pay for the tests in every way. The students also oh, yeah. pay for, for their poor test scores when they don't get accepted into the college of, of their choice. So the reason, reasons, the reason universities use them is because it's free, and, and it uh, saves them the time and the effort of um, examining more applications uh, or the number of applications that they otherwise would have to examine. Instead of looking at these meaningless test scores, which once, once you have a student's grades, the single best predictor of future grades are previously earned grades. Okay. If you add test scores, and no university is going to stop requiring students to submit their, their high school grades or their grades earned at another university. So the real question is, how much does the accuracy of prediction improve when we add test scores to previously earned grades? And the answer to that is just about zero. In other words, these tests yeah. are not useful. The only reason they're oh. used is to make the admissions process cheaper and easier for the universities. That's it. Oh, I'll, I'll, I would go along with you on that. I, I taught school for 25 years. And when I started teaching, um, there was literally no real testing. I taught special education. But by the time I got to the end of my career, some 30-some years later, half the time of my classroom action with the kids was giving them tests to indicate where they were instead of 100% working with the kids on things they needed to learn. And, and so as far as I, I'm concerned, testing is, is worthless. And SATs, you know, uh, don't mean anything. And, and you know, I, I, I'm almost to the point where I'm wondering if school is, any, is worthwhile. I think people should, frankly, personally, I think homeschooling is the best way to go, but then you have to have parents that are willing to do the work, and that's hard these days. But um, that's a fascinating topic, and and I think that uh, putting some information out there about them is is a, is a great idea. I, you know, you'll have critical support and critical denial, but that seems to be a place where you like to be. So. <laughs> Yeah, I enjoy exploring controversial yeah, oh. topics. 
Um, I don't think I don't think that all testing is useless, and I don't even think that all standardized testing is useless. Um, there's a program called the International Baccalaureate Program, and that's where uh, students all over the world um, study a certain curriculum, and at the end of uh, high school, they, they all write uh, basically the same exam. But the exams are not primarily multiple choice. It's the standardized multiple choice tests, which are meant to predict performance in college, and they don't. That's what I'm criticizing. Not all testing, not even all standardized tests, because a standardized test is just a test that's the same from one student to the other or from one school to the other. I have no problem with that as long as they're not multiple choice. But the reason why the testing companies use multiple choice tests is because they're easy to grade. They can be graded by a machine. In other words, mm -hmm. uh, they use multiple choice tests for the same reason that the colleges um, require many colleges and universities require these test scores. It just makes their lives easier and saves them time and money. But, you know, you still have also those students that don't do well with tests. And um, Yeah, but what do you mean by tests, though? Are you, talking about, are you talking about tests like the SAT, or are you talking about tests in general? Uh, SATs. SATs. Yeah, yeah, of course. Of course, that's what I'm saying. These tests have almost zero predictive power, and yet they cost society an enormous amount, not only in terms of money, but in terms of time, in terms of wasted... Uh, Wasted human potential. Well, you, you get down to, the don't you get down to, to actually the, the cost and the money and stuff? I mean, I know a lot of textbooks are still the same textbooks that have been around for the last 20 or 30 years, and yet um, they, they aren't willing to change them and rewrite them. It's easier to send the same textbooks out year after year after year. So it's a matter of, of art school systems going to replace all the textbooks or are they just going to go with what they've had in the past? And so in many ways we hold people in place and we don't teach them what's current because it's cost effective to just use the same textbooks over and over again. And the same could be said for the SAT test. I, I just think the SAT and uh, all similar tests, the MCAT, the LSAT, I think the whole lot of them should just be scrapped. Um, I think it's the biggest uh, one of the. I think it's the biggest financial ripoff in the history of the human race, quite frankly. One of them, for sure. Um, I, I think that that you have corporate entities in here with the dollar sign, and and uh, getting around them is going to be difficult. I think your I, I I think your point is a very good one. I don't. Well, know one what thing they should do. Yeah, one thing they should do, I think, is make the universities pay for the uh, the cost of testing. I mean, make them pay for the tests. I mean, <laughs> because they're the ones who reap all the benefits, and they right now they have none of the costs. It's the students who uh, have none of the benefits, uh, but bear all the costs. And so it's um, it's a it's a case of what economists refer to as externalities, and that's where costs or benefits are borne by people who are not making the decisions, or who are not bearing or benefits are borne by people who are not bearing the costs. Um, yeah. So that's that's one way of dealing with the problem. Make the universities pay for these tests. You can bet they they'll uh, they'll pretty quickly um, start to uh, examine, investigate uh, uh, how useful and accurate these tests really are as predictors of uh, of, uh, of accomplishment in university. Well, absolutely. When you consider that today, anyhow, I mean, it's been a long time since I put a kid through college, but. 
I can remember that the, the application fees alone often were over $100, sometimes quite a bit over. And, you know, with colleges that could only accept a certain number of students, the applications were at least five times that. So that they have a lot of extra money floating around. And I, I think having them pay for the testing is a great idea. So yeah, yeah, happen, I think it's, it, yeah, I think it's obscene that, uh, you know, students are spending all this time and uh, money uh, preparing for and writing these tests, and they, uh, they're the ones who have to uh, pay the price if they don't do particularly well. Um, yeah, um, what I think universities should use, uh, they, should look at, they should look at previous earned grades, they should look at references, they should look at outside activities, and they should look at samples of previous work, essays the student has written, uh, experiments the student has designed, uh, perhaps engineering projects the student has worked on, um, the, um, musical pieces that they've played, examples of paintings they painted, what have you, whatever is relevant to the program uh, to which they're applying. In other words, they should look at examples of actual accomplishment, previous accomplishment, and not phony predictors of future accomplishment. With the numbers they're dealing with, though, are they able to do that? Is I mean, I think, you know, the number on the SAT, you know, takes away a lot of the object, you know, the 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 real personal evaluation that goes into it. Um, and and today the applications of kids to colleges are, are are phenomenal. I mean, I don't know how they would evaluate if they didn't have something to sort of take cut cut the cut the numbers in half, or even you know more so to just address. Um, I, I understand why they use it. I don't know how I would help them to adjust their their process of of, of screening kids in order to get the kind of people that they would want to get, you know, into their programs. Cer certainly well, when you get excuse, to things, yeah. I mean, when you're looking that, at things like the performing arts and stuff like that, that's, that's where they do look at the work. Yeah. Well, the thing is, the, the, the excuse the colleges, the excuse the colleges make is that, uh, well, we've got thousands of applicants and how can we spend all the time you know, looking at each possible applicant? So we use these scores in order to cut down the numbers of applications we have to examine. Yeah, but these top schools, Harvard, MIT, they're rolling in money. They can afford mm -hmm. to hire a, depart a department of people whose job is to go through applications and examine them carefully and not just every single one I mean, and not just uh, use some sort of arbitrary cutoff score on a test which has zero predictive power, and uh, which um, not only that, but ironically, in many cases leads to um, a student population which is not necessarily as good as, a, as the population of students they would get if they looked at uh, uh, evidence of actual accomplishment instead of uh, some phony predictive uh, test score. Well, These you're test absolutely scores... right. Yeah. So I mean, if they're if they're getting no, if they're getting no thousands of applications, <laughs> okay, all right. I'm just saying if they're getting thousands of applications, and they've got you know they've got a lot of money, they can do better than that. I mean, they should just stop being so lazy. Oh, I agree with you. Um, but you know, you've you've pointed out a valid valid problem, and I guess. Starting to make noise and seeding the consciousness and the and the 
um, attention of people out there is a great way to start um, putting it out there and explaining. I mean, I, I, and and what I love is that you not only are pointing out a problem, but you're giving ways in which they they you know you, you're you're pointing out a problem, but you're also giving them possible potential solutions to it, which is it's a great thing. I mean, not it's it's unfair to say, you know, this is a problem. This is not fair. Fix it. You you are giving suggestions as to how they could fix it, which is uh, the way the way things should be done. So I just yeah. noticed the time. Um, we are we are out of time, and and I want to thank you so much. I want to first of all, I want to thank you for your books, because I think you've done a magnificent job. Um, answering questions and putting minds to rest. Anyone who does read your books is going to be far more comfortable with the whole spiritual take on all of these topics. And and I think that you've done a magnificent job. And and it sounds like you have uh, places that you're going with the material. So when the next book is written, make sure you get in touch with me and we will sit and we'll take it all apart on the air again. Um Thank you for your time and thank you for your gift and your talent and your efforts. I really so appreciate your books and, and the work that you've done, and, and I thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me, and uh, again, thank you for your kind words. Ah, it's been a total pleasure, and I am going to have to read the other two books, too, and get the full, the full um, impact of all of the material you've put out there. I want to thank... Mark Eddy for helping me today get Chris here on the show. I want to thank Chris for being here, and I want to thank all of you for listening. Uh, please check out the YouTube channel, and again, as before, subscribe if you haven't. If you like the material, let us know, and uh, keep in touch because we have tons and tons of people coming up here, so it's going to be a very exciting next year or so, at least. Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening, and have a great day. Bye-bye.